0: prophet Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elazar son of Shapham, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's
1: just prayers Patrick comes to share. Father God, may our hearts be open to all that you have for us. Bless and guide Patrick in his words now, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you ever so much. Okay, why don't you just turn to the person beside you and say, You look wonderful this morning. You look absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. Um, it's lovely to be here with you um, tonight. And what's that? Cotton Green? Is it, that's nearby, right? Uh, what's it? Cotton Green. Not Cotton Green at all. I don't know where that is. That's somewhere else. Cotton Green. Um, and doing, they've called it an evening with Patrick Regan. I really hope they're not expecting me to sing. That they've, um, they've booked the wrong person or something. I think they're going to be a big letdown this evening. Um, Goodness knows what we're going to do for a whole hour and a half, but there you go. Um, So, excited to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan, for inviting us. It's um, wonderful uh, to have here, to be, you know, feel your hospitality and your warmth. as you have tea and coffee, um, there's a little Kintsugi bookstall uh, out there if you're interested. Um, I've got a friend called Catherine who's an acoustic artist. Um, she's actually part of our first Kintsugi group. She's not a Christian yet, um, but she's absolutely brilliant. And uh, she's made all these um, individually made bespoke pendants and key rings and earrings. Um, it's really hard to find something today that isn't manufactured. Um, and the reason she does more hand-by-hand hand is, um, she says, when you're going through a h- tough time, it's really hard to know what to give someone. Giving them sympathy cards probably isn't the best thing in the world. It's a bit patronizing, isn't it? Um, so she made these beautiful things, and she says these, the scars of our lives are not to be hidden, for they make us who we are. Um, and the other things we've literally just brought out is these journals. I don't know how many people journal here. Um, journaling's brilliant for your mental health, actually. But sometimes when I journal, uh, I often pick up my journal when I'm feeling a bit negative. <laughs> um, and so what I did with this journal, it's beautifully designed. I put positive quotes and Bible verses and inspirational bits out of Honesty Over Silence in every other page. So I've come up with your positive thoughts for you. Um, but again, I, I only journal about two or three times a month, but it's absolute lifesaver for me. And then, um, Honestly Over Silence, I know some of you read this, that's the sort of themes I'm going to be looking at today. Um, you can check those out um, and, uh, and all the information's there. You can pay by card if you need to. Um, I used to do lots of youth work when I was a kid, and, uh, uh, and one of the things I used to find really amusing about doing youth work in schools was particularly the RE teachers. Have we got any RE teachers here today? Um, no, okay, and uh, there's a relief, and, uh, but RE teachers are interesting, because they're either, like, what they describe as born-again Christians, or atheists, and there's nothing in the middle, I don't understand why that is the case, and there was this one RE teacher who was an atheist, and he was telling the story of Jonah, and he was saying, you know, the story of Jonah is a myth, it's just there to teach us stuff, it's more made up, and there was this kid who's sitting on the front row, I think he was a bit of a Pentecostal kid, he went, excuse me, sir, the story of Jonah's not a myth, and it's not made up. And the teacher's like, well, how do you know? And the kid thought about this, he went, you know what, one day, sir, I'm gonna go to heaven, I'm gonna find Jonah, I'm gonna ask him. <laughs> Did you get swallowed by a whale? And the teacher was like, ha! That's all well and good. But what happens if Jonah went to hell? And the kid went, that's easy, sir. In that case, you can ask him. (laughs) (laughs) You just tend to say it how it is. Um, I believe in always being very real and very honest when I speak, and I hope that's okay with you. And today I really felt led to speak on this whole area of resilience. How do we keep going? And uh, there's this beautiful quote from Alan Scott, which I actually only read yesterday. Um, Coming up on the screen here, hopefully. There it is. It says, The future doesn't belong to the brilliant, but the resilient. Not to those who avoid scars or pain, but to the wounded healers who choose to give again. Now, this uh, passage that's been read to us out of Jeremiah, brilliantly, by the way, with all the long words as well, um, is, is actually probably, I think, the most misquoted passage in the whole of the Bible. Because the one bit that we always take out of this passage is verse 11, isn't it? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you hope. Now, the problem is, the reason why this is one of the most misquoted verses in the whole of the Bible is like many verses where you just pluck them out of context, we don't understand what's going on here. And so you have to understand, actually, I think this verse is more amazing than what a lot of people think it is. Because what's going on here is the book of Jeremiah was written in the context that the Babylonian army had invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. And the people of God had been taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. So 10,000s of Hebrew slaves were marched across several hundred miles of desert. And they live in a place where Yahweh isn't known. There's no temple, there's no Levitical sacrifices, there's no festivals, there's no celebrations. They lived to a different set of values. Put simply, they felt like aliens in a foreign land. So you know the book of Lamentations, the really cheerful book in the Old Testament? Um, That book is describing the sadness uh, of the people in exile. They felt orphaned. They felt grieved. They felt ruthless. They felt confused. They're like, God, what are you doing here? I feel like life is just overwhelming. I feel like I'm going to get consumed. Has anyone ever felt like that? Ever felt a little bit overwhelmed with life? And I think that's often one of the most um, common feelings when you ask people, who just feels overwhelmed sometimes? There's just too much. And then what happens in Jeremiah 28 is a prophet comes along, Hananiah, and, she, and they say uh, the Lord is going to return Israel uh, back to its former glory. All the temple treasures are going to head back that Nebuchadnezzar nicked, and, uh, and it's all gonna be okay within two years. That sounds pretty good. I can hang on in there for two years, you know. It's gonna be tough for two years, guys. And then Jeremiah says, you know what, guys, I'm sorry. That's a false prophecy. And so against that backdrop, Jeremiah writes to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and all those have been exiled. And what does he tell them in verse 10? In verse 10, he says, guys, It's going to be 70 years. You've got to hang in there for 70 years. Now, I prefer the Hananiah prophecy. Two years would be good. Do you know what I mean? 70 years. That's a long haul. That's tough. But then he says this. You know what? This isn't to be wasted. This isn't the 70 years you go, Oh, well, that's that then, isn't it? It says, in the 70 years, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. He says, to all those are carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage, so they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number, do not decrease, seek the peace and the prosperity of the cities which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And you see, the key thing here... Is actually the people in exile had to accept the situation they are in. Acceptance is always the first place to healing. I've had to learn um, that acceptance and resignation are two really different things. Acceptance is really, really important. Resignation is I quit. But they had to accept. They're not getting out of there for 70 years, but it is not to be wasted. Um, I got to um, meet, uh, a number of years ago now, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I hope you caught that name as it dropped there. And, uh, and I was really, really excited about him coming. Um, he was coming to meet me and a lot of the young people that I was working with. All the young people I was working with didn't have a clue who he was. Um, in fact, after his visit, one of them went, Oh, it was really nice for Trevor MacDonald to come down and to um, <laughs> hang out with us for the morning. And, uh, um, but Desmond Tutu fought against systems that create poverty and injustice. But he says this, we're meant to live in joy. This does not mean that life will be easy or painless. It means that we turn our faces to the wind and accept that this storm we must pass through. We cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from when change can begin. I remember for me, I was one of those classic people who just kept working hard, feeling overwhelmed, feeling burnt out, resting a bit, working a bit more hard, uh, resting a bit, then working a bit more hard, and, uh, and I remember um, I, I started my life, I haven't got time to go into it now, just started to implode with all sorts of things going wrong at work and with my kids and my family, and, uh, and I started to really struggle with anxiety, and uh, I was one, I don't know anyone else has ever done that, I was one of those classic people, I'd get a headache and I'd go to Dr. Google for a diagnosis. Has anyone else ever done that? You go to the internet for a diagnosis, and you end up with a brain tumour, and you are thinking, oh, my goodness, what's happened to me? And I was getting really, really stressed, really anxious. And they say that most roots of anxiety is death or people. You're either scared of dying, or you're scared of what other people think of you, which I think is true, right? Um, We all worry about what each other think of us. And, uh, and I remember there was this one time um, I ended up in A&E and I was so embarrassed, I was so ashamed and I was convinced I was having a heart attack. I was shooting pains all over my chest and I had every test that you can have, you know. And you know, you know what a and is like, I do know what it's like up here. For me, I felt like I was there for a few days. It was probably like about five hours. And I had this test and that test and in the end, this really lovely, compassionate nurse actually, she went, um, I think you're stressed out. I think your mental health is, you know, you're working so hard. You need to stop. And you can't carry on the way that you're carrying. And, and the thing was, struggling with anxiety, when I started to tell people in church, um, it was really hard because people would say to me, well, you know what you need to do, Patrick? You just need to trust God a bit more. As if I've never thought of that idea, you know. Um, Are you praying hard? I'm like, I've never prayed so hard in all my life. Is there a secret sin that you haven't, ask God to forgive you for I confessed every sin that i would ever done I even made some up just to make sure you know I was like in that place and and actually do you know what it made me feel if I'm honest useless God you don't love me I'm doing something wrong and then as well as suffering from anxiety you suffer from guilt for suffering from anxiety because I'm meant to trust God I'm meant to be this um leader type who people look up to and my life is falling apart and I went through the shoulds, the musts, I oughts. Has anyone ever done this? Um, I should be able to cope. Uh, what's wrong with me? I must pull myself together. I ought to be stronger. I should, I must, I ought. And then I think shame starts to um, sink in. You know, shame and guilt are two very different things. Shame, uh, Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. And I started to believe that. Brené Brown famously says that shame loves silence, secrecy, and judgment. They can't stand empathy. They can't stand understanding. And I started on my worst days, you know, I started thinking, I reckon everyone would be happy if I wasn't here. And they talk about suicide um, as if it's some sort of thing which is selfish. I think people, and we've seen this in the press, haven't we, recently with Caroline Flack, people are in so much pain. You're in so much pain that you believe the world would be better off if you weren't here. And people say, why do you talk about this stuff? Well, I talk about it because 6,500 people complete suicides every single year. And that we have to start talking about this stuff. We have to start grappling with this sort of stuff. So, when I was in my time of um, really struggling, um, I do what I often do when I'm really struggling. I start to write books. (laughs) And uh, I wrote Honesty over Silence. And at times I thought, you know, it's a little bit too honest. It's never going to get published. And I'll never talk in a church ever again. And, uh, and then I read the Psalms. 40% of the Psalms are laments. They're David crying out to God, I just don't get it, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And, uh, and just studying about the people in exile and, and what it meant for them to be there for 70 years, um, not knowing what, what was going to happen, just feeling like they were aliens in a foreign land and, and having to live with that sense of resilience to keep going, even though that was the case. And uh, I interviewed a load of people in my book, um, not just me. I interviewed a lovely lady called Rachel Wright. And Rachel has a son who has a life-limiting condition. He has, um, he has, he has to be turned every two hours. He has 20 injections given to him a day. It's not the sort of story you hear from the front of a pulpit. We like to tell our healing and miraculous stories. But for me, this is a miraculous story because Rachel just loves Jesus so much. And she says, I struggle sometimes with my faith because you know what? You lot and Chris Church talk about seasons. Next season is my son dies. So I want to stay in this season as long as I can. But she goes, I couldn't do it without my faith. The next person in the book was John Sutherland. John Sullivan is a Met Borough Commander, which means he has 1,500 police officers that work to him. Um, he is a tough guy. But he ended up in A&E. And it wasn't because of a stabbing or a shooting. It was because he had a breakdown. He's like, I just couldn't do it anymore, he said. And I went round after him to see him. He's really he's one of my best friends. And I said, um, mate, um, how are you doing? He goes, you know what, Patrick? The whole man up stuff. Hasn't worked out very well for me, has it? I was like, it doesn't work out very well for any of us. And then Alan and Jackie, who are just this precious couple, they did a chapter, um, which is a tender chapter. It's about their, how their 16-year-old son completed a suicide. And I was like, why tell your story? And they were like, we've got to tell our story because this is happening to too many other parents. We've got to start talking about this. And I realize that this stuff that Desmond Tutu is talking about and what it's saying here in Jeremiah is actually you've got to accept where you're at in order to get free. And I started to think, what are the things that I need to accept in order to become more resilient? And, uh, And I thought, if I can accept these things, I think these could be complete game changers for me. And, uh, and these were the things I needed to learn to accept. I needed to accept it's okay not to be okay. I needed to accept it's okay to have limitations. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because we sort of live in a culture that says, dream big. You can be anything you want to be. Well, actually, that's not always true, is it? We're going to live a certain amount of years. We've got confines to where we live, to the geography. You know, um, God is not making a superman. Um, it's okay to have limitations. Those limitations are there to help us. Um, life is never going to be perfect. I need to accept you don't have to be all things to all people. You can have questions. You don't have to agree with everyone. Thank goodness. Anxiety isn't weakness. Struggling doesn't mean you're failure. It means you're human. Life's never going to be perfect. You are loved no matter what. And I realised that anxiety actually isn't weakness. People that struggle with anxiety are often beautiful, sensitive people. It's just like anything. When it goes a little bit out of control, it affects you and it affects everyone around you. And so it's how to manage that. But this quote really cheered me up. It said this, anxiety isn't weakness. Living with anxiety, turning up, doing stuff with anxiety takes a strength most of us will never know. I decided that anxiety, panic attacks and depression are not signs of weakness, signs of trying to remain strong for too long. And to be honest, if I'm really honest, in the church sometimes, I'm not sure what we've given people to hang on to. Because sometimes we've gone, come to God and he'll zap you. And it's the instant prayer, the instant miracle. And, you know, healing by nature of healing is a process, right? It takes time. Miracles do happen. I believe in miracles. We don't often see them, what we, um, but they do happen. But what we also see is amazing, amazing, faithful, beautiful people engaging with God in the midst of exile. There's no magic wand. Jeremiah, um, Liz Carter uh, commented on this passage. She said this. Jeremiah didn't give false hope by promising that their future would be theirs for the taking right now in their lives. Instead, he advised them to comply, participate in this situation. God was extending hope to those in a horrendous situation, not making a promise that life would suddenly become pain-free of difficulty. Resilience is basically, by definition, is thriving in the midst of adversity. That's what it means. And resilience is like a muscle. And actually, I don't know if you know this, those of you into um, weightlifting, anyone into weightlifting? Let me look at, see any strong looking gentlemen or females here today. Well, actually, what happens when you do weightlifting is the muscle breaks a little bit. And then when you're resting, that's when the muscle grows. Interesting. Um, it's the rest that causes the growth and the strain that causes the break. But resilience is a little bit like a muscle. And so my key thing here that I wanted to really share with you guys is if you are a little bit like me, you're looking at how do I develop resilience? How do I keep going? What are the three things that you could really take away from today? And uh, because I always want to make it really practical. Number one, and these aren't my things. This is by a famous psychologist. Um, He says there's three Ps that stunt our recovery. Number one is personalization. Which means we believe that we're always at fault. We take maximum responsibility. You know, as a parent, if your kid's doing well, then actually it's great. If they're not doing well, it's got to be all my fault. You know, I have four children. Um, I have a 17-year-old teenager and, uh, who, who can get upset incredibly easily. In fact, I don't know what I was thinking of the other day. I upset her so badly. Um, apparently, I was breathing too loud and you know it is is not easy and uh, but the whole thing about Kezia if she's doing brilliantly then I'm doing brilliantly but if she's not doing so well it's all my fault and don't get me wrong some of it may be but actually it's not all about taking personal response it's not personal the whole time my wife would say to me you wouldn't dream of putting your friend under the same pressure that you put yourself under Um, abuse um, not everything happens because of us I don't know if you've seen this film, Good Will Hunting. Anyone seen this film? It stars Robin Williams. Um, He's like a psychiatrist in the film. And Matt Damon, he's like this mass genius, but troubled childhood. And there's this point in the film, this incredibly moving point in the film, where the psychiatrist is trying to help Matt Damon uh, fulfill his potential because he's going way off the rails. And he has this picture of uh, someone that's obviously been abused and uh, the bruises on the back. And he turns to Matt Damon's character and goes, See this? Do you know anything about this? And Matt Damon's character is like, Yeah, I know quite a lot about that actually. You? He goes, Yeah, I've experienced some of that myself. And then he, he looks at him and he goes, um, See this? Not your fault. And Matt Damon's character goes, I know. He goes, No, no, look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. He starts walking a little bit closer. It's not your fault. Oh, no! Then there's lots of swearing, so I can't show it in church. But the thing is, so often we think everything's our fault, that everything goes wrong, it's our fault. I'm not good enough. I should, I must, I ought. If we're going to recover, if we're going to keep going, we're going to be resilient, we've got to stop taking everything personally, personalization. Second thing, um, pervasiveness. This is the belief that an event will affect every area of your life. So this is really interesting for me. I've been through major surgery a number of times. I think some of you will know my story. And, uh, which meant that I was sort of in bed uh, uh, up to about six months a time. Had a big metal frame put around my leg, drilled into my bones and all this sort of stuff. Couldn't do anything. I'm an activist. It was very frustrating. And I used to feel I was like, that's it, my life is over. You know, when uh, one of my friends died, it was like, that's it, it's over. And they were like, you know, that is so heartbreaking and your leg is so bad and that is so difficult and this situation is so difficult that it's not denying that. But what you've got to realise, Patrick, is not your whole life. There are other parts of your life. Pervasiveness means we let one part of our life affect the whole part of our lives. The fact is, I'm still married. I still have my kids that love me most of the time. I still um, am managing to do a little bit of work on the laptop. Uh, It's not my whole life. And yet it is an all or nothing thinking Jeremiah was like, guys, come on, settle down, plant gardens, Uh, marry, pray for the peace of the city. You know, it's tough, but I'm going to give you hope within the toughness. That's what Jeremiah is saying, which is much better than just saying, one day we're going to have hope and we're all going to be blessed and it's all going to be fine. In the midst of the toughness, I'm going to give you hope. And then the last thing is permanence. Um things never last forever. Sometimes we take our weakness and turn it into our identity. And uh, um, like my kids have now heard me talk quite a few times and so um, they do this thing now where um, I'll say to them, they're in the kitchen, they've got uh, I dread it. When I hear the sound, dad, I think I'm gonna do some baking. I'm like, oh, please God, rapture me now. I can't do it. Because there's like literally like, everything is out, you know, mess, flour, and, and you know, like, as a parent, you're meant to sort of welcome this type of thing. You know, it's like, oh, great, baking, just what I want. And, uh, and every part of you is dying inside. And then it's like, um, uh, I'll turn to Abby and I'll go, Abby, you're such a mess. And she'll look at me and she'll go, Daddy, I am not a mess. I happen to be making a mess. <laughs> Which is true. Because what we do is we take something, we say, I am this. It's not all of you. It's not permanent. Permanence means everything lasts and nothing lasts. We change from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And, uh, um, and that's how we need to do. I think in today's culture, people are feeling swamped. Whether it's Brexit, whether it's climate change, whether it's trauma, uh, whether it's issues around mental health and loneliness. And some people are facing situations, and I guess some people are facing situations here where you feel like it's just all-consuming, And so this passage in Lamentations written to the people in exile is beautiful. In the midst of exile, God says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails, for they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, I say to the Lord. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. When I was going through a bit of a tough time, my wife wanted to try and get me out of the house a bit more uh, because I didn't want to go out, so she brought me a dog. Uh, here's my dog. Don't do that. It yeah, chews everything. And uh, and we called the dog Hope, which is a rubbish name for a dog. Can you imagine how my neighbours felt with me shouting out at the top of my voice for the first six months? No, Hope! <laughs> Sometimes they heard me go, No Hope, No Hope, No Hope, No Hope. He's got it really bad today. In fact, apparently they heard me shout up the stairs, Diane, I've lost hope. <laughs> Jumped over the fence. And uh, she doesn't like me going away, Hope. She, um, she likes me to stay. And, uh, but you know, hope is this. Hope is saying nothing lasts, everything passes. Jeremiah says, I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you hope. Uh, um, some of you may have heard me share this before. Um, A couple of years ago now, I went to um, uh, Amsterdam. Um, You've read a book called The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom. and basically tells a story about Corrie ten Boom. She was a watchmaker in Holland, and what she did is she hid Jews in her bedroom. They built a false wall, and uh, when the Nazis were there, um, they'd have signals, and the the Jews would run, and they'd hide behind this wall. Sometimes they would stand there for hours upon hours upon hours. Um, But they literally saved hundreds and hundreds of lives. But eventually, um, Corrie and her sister Betsy, they got taken to Ravensbrook Concentration Camp uh, where the conditions were horrendous. They slept in these tiny little bunks. Um, Lice used to eat away at their skin. They were wearing hardly any clothes. They were malnourished. And there was this scene um, in one of the books that really spoke to me. And uh, basically, it was half four in the morning and it's roll call. And roll call used to last for a couple of hours. And, uh, and she's made to stand there in the middle of this um, situation and uh, roll call, it's dark, it's cold and it's horrible and the woman in front of her collapses and she goes to reach for the woman and everyone looks down and it's almost like this is it, this is the darkest we can ever be. And at that moment, it's when they felt this is the darkest moment, we've lost hope, this is the darkest thing that could ever go through. They saw a skylark, in fact they heard a skylark a Skylark is one of the only birds that sings in the darkness. Let's close your eyes for a sec. Cory Ten Boom said this, I want to be someone that sings in the darkness as well as sing in the light. And I was inspired by that story. I thought if she doesn't lose hope in a concentration camp, however difficult my life is now, I'm not going to lose hope. And, uh, and so I went to her house in Amsterdam, I was only there for 24 hours, that's me standing in her bedroom um, in front of the, um, the hiding place, the, the false wall they put in to hide uh, the Jews. And, uh, and as I was leaving, it was interesting, there was this beautiful lady who was a volunteer who showed us around, she said, Corrie ten Boom finished all her talks with this little poem. So I'm like, if it's good enough for Corrie ten Boom, it's definitely good enough for me. And, uh, and she started to hold up this picture. She said this, My what my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oh, the time he weaveth sorrow, and I, my foolish pride, forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shutters cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. With that, she turned the picture around and it revealed this beautiful crown she carried on reading. The dark threads are needful in the weaver's skillful hand, as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. You see, we were looking at the back of the tapestry. We were looking at the behind the scenes, and put uh, and, this precious, incredible crown. It was a masterpiece, and I don't get it. I don't get why sometimes light and shade have to go together in our experience. Uh, When life looks confusing and painful, we can still trust because God is developing a masterpiece. He takes every strand, the good, the bad, he weaves it together, and you are his masterpiece. Shame starts to die as we own our story. Shame starts to die as we tell our stories. That's why the Kintsugi groups are so incredibly powerful. Because if you feel safe and you feel supported and you start talking about stuff and people love you anyway and they're not going to judge you and they're going to pray for you, something starts to happen. You feel like, actually, I can be normal here. Empathy is about being less judgmental. We need to stop trying to fix people and start to love them and care for them. The last thing about this passage, and this is where, again, everyone goes wrong, um, for our plans to prosper you and not to harm you. The you in this passage is plural. It doesn't mean you as in an individual. It means you all. It was written to a community of people. We've made this passage as the passage of, you know, we pray it over people when they go to university or when it's their birthdays or, or on a wedding. Actually, you can do it. I'm sure God doesn't mind. But it's not what the passage is saying. He's saying it to a community. He's saying it to all of them. It's about being together. It's about not being that lone ranger. And you know, one of the biggest issues in our society today is loneliness. And it's been so fascinating that as we've opened up the conversations around some of these topics, um, we would never have dreamt of some of the emails that we get back. I've got a folder like that on my desk and people just sharing this most incredible stuff. I read just a couple of quotes. It says this, I see myself and God so differently now. I've hidden and avoided my friends for years because I didn't know it was okay not to be okay. The image of the pottery fixed with gold changed me. I realized my brokenness is beautiful and it made me who I am. Another letter said, I'm so grateful for you for lifting, uh, lifting of my guilt and my shame over many issues that have dogged at my heels for so many years, both physical and mental health issues that I've always seen as a barrier to my life rather than a new way to live my life. Another letter was like, it was the realization, it was the release, at the realization not going mad, I just have anxiety issues. Once I know these things, we can move forward and we can keep going. Jesus always dealt with someone's shame before he dealt with their guilt. You notice that? Zacchaeus come down from the tree. It was his shame that put Zacchaeus in the tree. The woman caught in adultery, the woman with the blood disorder, the man, the blind man at the side of the road. And I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know how you need to keep going, what resilience you need, but I pray that you would find hope in the midst of exile. And i finished finish by showing you a video. Um, and uh, the first line of the song is, says, you are not hidden. And I feel like God was saying, there's some, some of you that have been struggling with some stuff for a long time. And almost, almost you've just gone, God, I think you're not listening. I think you're, I'm hidden from you. I feel forgotten, actually, though we probably never admit that as a a nice Christian that goes to church on a Sunday morning, but I do feel a little bit forgotten. And this song is just a gentle reminder that says, you're not hidden. We are not the rescuer. I can't rescue anyone. I'm not an expert in anything. I'm just a normal bloke that loves Jesus a lot, but actually he is the rescuer and he sees you. He actually sees you. He understands what you're going through. He saw the people in exile. He didn't offer them false hope by going. It's all going to be okay. He says, you know what? 70 years, it's going to be tough, but we're going to get hope within that 70 years. Check this out.
2: You are not hidden. There's never been a moment you were forgotten. You are not hopeless. You have been broken, your innocence stolen I hear you whisper distance cannot be covered over and over you're not defenseless I'll be your shelter I'll be your armor I hear you whisper
1: the worship guys come back i'm just going to pray i know our time is gone um, but i'd love to pray for you guys if you're able please would you stand with me is that okay just take a couple of minutes father god i thank you for every single person in this room Father, thank you, Lord, that for people where life is going fantastic, I thank you for that. Um, Where life is a little bit tough and then people may feel that in a bit of exile, they're not quite knowing what's going on. Loving you, serving you, but not quite knowing what's going on. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed. I pray, God, that you would touch them now as we worship you. Where people are tired. Been to so many meetings, heard so many sermons. And yet, still find it a struggle. God, I thank you, they're not forgotten. That you see them, you love them, you care for them. Father, where there's some parents here, and actually, you love your kids, but my goodness, you're tired. You are really tired. And you're feeling overwhelmed. God, when you come and comfort, people who are struggling for work, God, I pray that you would speak to them in their situation. In Jesus' name,
0: come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord.